Welcome to Women Travel, a podcast where I interview women about the things they've done in foreign countries. My name is Morgan Esberg, and this week I interview my friend Ash Shope. I chose to interview Ash not only for her lovely speaking voice, but also because she is about to embark on her second circumnavigation of the globe. We begin with me figuring out how to describe her and all that she has accomplished. I've met you through the Bozeman Dharma Center, and I know that you do a lot more in the community. So can you give me an idea of what you do with your time? Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm at the Bozeman Dharma Center facilitating groups and creating spaces for people to explore their interior selves and explore how that can be translated into the world around them as service. And for me, that service takes on a couple different forms. One of them is working in mental health. I work as a group facilitator in suicide prevention programs with adolescents. I also work for a project called Climate Change and Consciousness and a uh, trauma healing organization called the Tara Approach. That sounds like a lot. It is. It is a lot, and it is also all very important parts of uh, what the world, what I look at the world and see the world could use more of. With all of these services, how does travel become a part of your, your daily or lifelong practice? Sure. You know, travel for me has always, at least in the last few years, it has shifted into an emphasis on what I'm calling right now pilgrimage. There's a quote that someone mentioned to me recently, and unfortunately, I don't know who said it. But the quote goes, if all travelers became pilgrims, the world would change. And you know, when I say pilgrimage, I'm not necessarily talking about a specific practice. Sometimes that word is used to describe specific practices in religious or contemplative or spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. But I'm really referring to an orientation. And so pilgrimages occur for me when I go to the new labyrinth at our public library. And it also occurs when I have the good fortune of traveling around the world. I'm not sure I understand your use of the word pilgrimage do you mean because often it's it's kind of or the most famous one currently today is is to take a pilgrimage to mecca or to go to a place and to have some sort of big moment or uh, enlightenment and is that kind of the intention it could be for me pilgrimage has become an attitude as opposed to a trajectory with a goal Um, and this attitude is really defined by a sense of humility when traveling and Mm -hmm. an openness to awe and also an emphasis not just on the external, you know, where one is traveling through or to, Mm -hmm. but also maintaining a certain awareness of what these places or these people or these animals uh, inspire in you and how they bring you into connection with something greater than yourself. Kind of the challenge to expose yourself and then see what the reaction is. Two different expo- yes. experiences. Yeah. So we've discussed that you have traveled around the world already. And I'm curious, what did that first trip entail for you? You know, this last trip in which I went around the world was actually my, my second trip out of the country, wow. actually. Yes. Um, the first one was almost 10 years ago when I went to Central America. And, yeah, that first one really showed me that... All of the things I knew in my heart that I had not had confirmed in the world around me Mm. were true. And it woke me up to something much larger than myself. I was able to see communities that were intact 
a vulnerability and a courage in people's eyes that I hadn't seen in many of the people in the culture where I was raised in the United States, mm-hmm. specifically in Montana, where we are now. Mm-hmm. And this most recent trip uh, came more as a calling. As mentioned, I have a Buddhist meditation practice, and sometimes that entails going on long, silent meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. And on my first silent meditation retreat, I was a few days in, and I was meditating, and out of nowhere, into my consciousness, this, um, this message came, and it said, you're going to Burma. And I said back, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, Burma is now referred to as Myanmar. Okay. Um, that, that calling, that guidance from wherever it came, was the, the seed of this journey. Okay. And this journey, when I went around the world, entailed going from Bozeman to the UK, to Myanmar and Thailand, to Bali, to South Korea, and back to the United States. After your first trip like that, what are some of the biggest things that you learned? Well, on a very practical level, I learned that traveling to uh, England in the winter and Southeast Asia in the winter are two very different experiences. <laughs> and yeah, tell me about that. Put simply, my the fleeces I packed for England did not serve me well in Southeast Asia. <laughs> <laughs> and the tank tops for Southeast Asia just taunted me in England. Huh. So, let's see, in Southeast Asia, can, yeah, what what is the weather variance? At this at the time that I was there, which was in January and February, it's quite warm. Mm. January, February, and December in um, the UK is quite cold. I, I'm used to being in the north. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would definitely think a little bit more about, you know, crossing hemispheres mm. and thinking about the environmental changes. On the heart level, and hearkening back to our conversation about pilgrimage, part of what I learned on my first trip out of the country, period, was that so much more was possible that I had always held in my heart and that community could look a certain way and that people could be together in ways that were radically different and felt more whole than I experienced in my culture. Please elaborate on that. (laughs) You know, I feel like I'm still parsing through that, but what I remember is myself at that age being just completely filled with hope and heartbreak, witnessing uh, intact indigenous communities Mm. And noticing the relationships between people, noticing the way that the women carried themselves, noticing uh, the softness in people's faces in the evenings. And that made a big impression on me as someone from an industrialized Western culture. And then on this most recent journey, a lot of my time was spent in a monastery in Myanmar. And when you're in a monastery, there's a lot of coming and going, at least the one I was at. People are coming to practice for a while and then leaving. Or monks and nuns are coming in from going on alms rounds and collecting rice. There's a lot of movement. The alms rounds is where they, is that a practice in begging or is that something else? Or Similar to that, there's um, a really beautiful structure in many Buddhist cultures, including Myanmar, in which the community supports the monastery. Mm -hmm. So monks cannot have money or hold money, 
And so it makes, unless they grow all their own food, more food has to come from somewhere else. And the monks have historically provided a service to the community of holding wisdom, practicing meditation for the benefit of their community and all beings. Mm -hmm. And so the community responds to this service by supporting them with goods, um, often rice. Mm -hmm. I had the fortune of going on one of these alms rounds with the monks once. Um, And most people would come out um, in this Balinese, not Balinese, this village in Myanmar with big pots of rice and the monks would walk by with their bowls and the they would ladle just a scoop of rice mm-hmm. into each monk's bowl. And they went to enough houses that all the monks had full bowls of rice by the time they came home. And then all the monks dumped all of that rice into a collective pot. So no one got more than another and that was then distributed to the community within the monastery. Wow, that's beautiful. I agree. (laughs) I am kind of surprised to hear that it's going strong, that that sounds like, at least for that specific community, still a very strong pull for them to still support each other like that. It was really beautiful to see. And living in the globalized world that we live, um, support also comes from other places. And so when I would line up to get meals at the monastery, there was this um, LED sign that would flash a name repeatedly, very brightly. And that name was the name of the donor of the meal for that day. So wealthy persons from other countries that had practiced or from that specific community would donate funds Mm -hmm. for everyone at the monastery to eat. And at this particular monastery, there were almost 400 people. And for two full meals a day, 365 days a year, someone in the world valued the work that all of these people are doing enough to donate food. It was incredibly humbling. How long did you spend at the monastery? I was there for just about a month. I'm curious because I want to definitely go towards the, because you've decided to take another trip like that, another circumnavigation of the world. But I am curious if there was anything else that was very prominent. It sounds like there was a lot of noticing of community and how humans are interacting that's different than in America. Um, Was there anything else that was really prevalent to you? When I close my eyes and think about your question, I just see the streets of Bali. And traveling to Bali was such a gift. Uh, Like many places in the world, it is impacted by tourism It is changing as a result of how beautiful it is and how Mm. wonderful the people are. Um, But when I visited Bali, I was able to get out of the major centers of tourism and drive through the villages. And everywhere I I went in Bali, there was just ritual spilling out of every corner. And on every motorcycle or every doorstep were these beautiful woven rice offerings to the deities. And there was nowhere that the air doesn't smell like incense. And being a part of a culture that connected to ritual and to practices that connect people with something beyond themselves Mm -hmm. was exquisitely beautiful. And I sometimes I walk around and try to find pieces of that in the culture I live in now because it was so nourishing to -hmm. witness that and to be embedded in that. I don't see myself as a religious person, but there is a um, the author of a book called The New Atheist has a really good stance about that, where just because you don't believe in a God doesn't mean that there can't be 
like you said, like a ritual, like an intention, like an appreciation for beauty and to slow down and really contemplate what you're doing and rather than just saying that all of that's ridiculous. It's, it's the traditions behind it that are, can be incredibly humbling. And, and I love how you said that that's putting something out there that is beyond the individual. And I would definitely say that in America, it feels like a very individualized country where we have less of the, I almost want to say like less of the bigger picture. <laughs> I wanted to point um, one more thing, and then we're going to move on. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you have said several times that there's uh, vulnerability or hardness in America versus um, the communities in other countries, or more a hardness in Western cultures. Would you agree with that? I think there are certain cultural conditionings that create a general tone mm. where vulnerability is something that usually a lot of people have to put energy into learning. And vulnerability is a, is a big term. Uh, but it is, I'm referring to the ability or the, the willingness to operate from a very authentic place, regardless of whether or not we judge that place as too much or ugly or too sad. And the, what I'm pointing to is what I identify as a crisis in connection, that in, in the culture that I'm embedded in, though I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful community and feel very connected to the place I live and the people around me, a tone that I see or a theme that I see is that there is a, a deficit of connection between people or between people in the environment or people mm. and the impact of their actions. And I think a lot of what I was picking up on in some of these other cultures, certainly not all of them, um, but at least where I was, was a more connected way of being. So through this next trip, have you been inspired to seek a certain type of connection this next trip is coming from several different motivations, one of which is that in all of the cultures I've been privileged to witness and wander through, I have not visited the lands that my ancestors came from. And that is a level of connection that I would like to cultivate within myself is a sense of connection to the lands of my ancestors. Hmm. So that's one of them. But... A bigger one is also in response to this crisis and connection in which I want to go, if I am allowed to, live with uh, indigenous cultures and listen and learn from them and hope to bring back to my culture some of the things that I learn in terms of how humans can connect to each other and the natural world more fully. If you don't mind me asking, where specifically are you planning to go or what countries are, your, are you aiming for? I do not have a, an itinerary yet. I'm tapping into global networks that I'm a part of and seeing where there are people that would be willing to allow me to come in and learn from them mm. and witness them. You know, that's not something that I would want to impose upon any group of people. Sure. And for me, that, you know, in this pilgrimage and that attitude of humility comes with a certain process of, of asking and ensuring that it's not a problematic for me to come learn from these people. I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to come up with a joke. Or it's just like, <laughs> just show up. Hey, teach me your shit. Um, gosh, didn't that happen recently where someone had, uh, they just wandered into an indigenous area and then they got shot with arrows or something? 
Yep. Yeah. That did happen. (laughs) (laughs) Not recommended. Right. (laughs) From previous trips and moving forward, do you think your gender will influence how you make decisions? Absolutely. It absolutely did. Um, I was on on a recent meditation retreat I was on. I was talking with another woman and out of her came this, this outpouring that said, I'm tired of women not being safe in the world. Yeah. And that very real grief that she was feeling has absolutely informed the way that I inhabit the world when traveling. Before I left on my circumnavigation of the globe, I participated in about six to nine months of martial arts training. And that was very helpful. It did not give me the illusion that I could defend myself against all troubles. However, it did add a level of confidence to my being as a diminutive white woman (laughs) that I could respond to situations if I absolutely had to or that I could protect people I was with if I had to. For me, at least, um, I took jujitsu classes Mm -hmm. and it made me feel like, okay, at least I have something rather than the assumed nothing that women had, like that feeling of, of disempowerment. It was at least a one hit chance. Yes. Yes. And that feeling of empowerment you're speaking to is, I think it's very valuable to cultivate that as a woman, whether you're traveling or not, but especially when there is a language barrier. When I was in Myanmar, when I first got there, I met with one of my Buddhist teachers and he showed me around some of the pagodas and I asked him for any advice. One of the many things he told me was don't wear your hair down. And I took that to heart, but it introduced this level of of concern and awareness and wherewithal sort of turned on the street smart Mm. in me a little more Mm -hmm. than it would have if I had not been made aware of some of those risks. I also tend to research the risks for women in particular in the places where I'm traveling. How do you go about researching for that? I use the wonderful world of Google. (laughs) (laughs) I guess... I want to understand what the question is. Sure. Well, I usually would go to Google and I would say crime rate women Myanmar. And I would just look what are women experiencing in terms of crime related danger in these areas. Do you ever get frustrated by that feeling of anxiety? Like you said you were in a Buddhist community and you're supposed to be safe, but there's still that little bit of anxiety of of, like you said, turns on the switch of street smarts. How do you feel or how do you manage that that constant feeling when you're traveling? You know, it's very context-specific. Sure. In the monastic environment, interestingly enough, it was managed sort of for me, in a sense, where I stayed out late, very one, one night, very late, walking around these paths and by these ponds. And when I came back, there was a very angry nun waiting for me. And she pulled me inside and she told me that if I wasn't back in time, I would get locked out next time. And I said, well, what do you mean locked out? She informed me that at night, all of the women's dormitories are locked Mm. from the the inside and that the men's are not. You can't see it, (laughs) but like that was just a massive eye roll from me. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have a very complex experience of that frustration and that anger and that anxiety that you're speaking to that is very real and in my experience very ancient and very important to Mm. work with and to find ways to express and other women to share it with Um, when traveling when I'm feeling 
that extra level of wherewithal, knowing that I am a woman alone walking through certain streets, I often remember that I am an animal. And Mm -hmm. like an animal, I have these keen senses of hearing and of seeing, and I have senses that bring hairs up on my arms and neck. And I pay attention to that. And I remember this embodied knowledge and responsiveness that I have. And when I look at it that way, it helps me recognize that I'm experiencing this phenomenon of nature and that I'm very prepared to be in my surroundings. Uh, This might sound like a detour, but that reminded me of uh, whenever I played sports growing up, I would like run my tongue over my canines (laughs) just because it was like a good reminder. Like, yeah, I, I am strong. I am powerful enough to do this. And then it just gave me another feeling of competency. I love that. I love that. And I think not doing it entirely alone. I have a certain thrill of being in foreign places alone. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that there are risks and that should something happen, I would really like to be found. So I tend to let people know (laughs) where I'm going, uh, when I expect to be certain places, um, Mm -hmm. and stay in touch with people that could support me if something terrible did happen. I think that's a men and women thing should do that when traveling alone. (laughs) Everyone should do that. (laughs) Yeah, there's another layer of what you're asking about in terms of my experience of femaleness in traveling. And that's that I also have a chronic disease. I have type 1 diabetes. And my whole life I've been fascinated by other cultures. My mother gave me a love of anthropology And I was raised moving a lot, and I was exposed to many different subcultures in the United States. And when I was a teenager, I was diagnosed with diabetes. In one way or another, I got the impression that that meant that I couldn't travel. Mm. And so on top of this sort of fear that comes from the long legacy of women being unsafe in the world, there was this other layer of, oh, and now you're sick. And so for me, (sighs) traveling actually helped me come to terms with both of those and type 1 diabetes is not an easy condition to have and it requires a lot of management but I was able to circumnavigate the globe for four or five months um, without any complications though it did require extra levels of preparation absolutely how worried were you going into it that did you overpack or, or did you just say whatever will be will be before you left I certainly overpacked I feel that I'm still learning how to not pack too many clothes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, In terms of the diabetes, I looked up, you know, where's the closest hospital? Where's the closest place to get supplies? I let my family know if I need something, can you mail it to me? Mm -hmm. Um, I did put these systems in place to catch me if there was unforeseen circumstances. I am so impressed by you arming yourself with research. Like, I'm just going to find all of the answers before I'm there. And that is just really impressive. That is not how I do things. So I love that. (laughs) And I'm also impressed by anyone willing to travel alone. Because there is a sense of liberation, but also isolation. There's a trade-off there. And personally, I'm addicted to that individualistic liberated feeling i'm curious like yeah just did you do you have any thoughts on that did you get to experience that sure i mean there's absolutely a thrill in the individualistic foray into the unknown it's wildly thrilling i can feel (laughs) it even as we're talking about it yeah and also what i've found is that on the times where i was alone in my travels 
anywhere that I went that I thought I was alone brought me back to other beings. When I went alone into the monastery, I was in a community of people. When I went alone into the woods, I was in a community of trees. And so, though there was initially this individualistic thrill, when I really stopped and looked around, I was actually embedded in this incredible web of connectivity in life. And that is what makes it worth it. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, don't, I have no follow-up questions. That's just a lovely thought. <laughs> it's a better experience. <laughs> That's been a thing for me lately is seeking the concept of liberation mm. um, and realizing usually it's just myself holding the reins back. Um, but sometimes it's the environment that I'm in just feels more restrained than I want it to be. And travel and just giving into that wanderlust I have found is a great way to feel liberated, to feel like the ultimate me can be expressed. And then I have to like go back to work and like pull it back <laughs> in a little bit. <laughs> well, that really ties in again to the essence of what I mean by pilgrimage. Part of that is recognizing that going on a big journey, whether it's around the world or just into yourself and who you really are, is that there is a coming home again. There's a going back to work again. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if, if you don't bring something with you back to the community, if you don't bring a new version of yourself back and do what it takes to cultivate that new life within yourself that the world inspired, part of me asks, what's the point? It's the foundation of the hero's journey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or heroin hero. in this case yeah <laughs> be your own heroine <laughs> this is another research question but how much time do you put into planning you know it really depends on where i'm going uh, when i went to england i was with my partner and i had a place to stay already and i planned very little um, i think when i know someone in another culture who's been living there i don't plan very much because i'd like to show up and and see what they value in that place and share that experience with them. But I put a significant amount of time into planning visas and making sure that I had somewhere to stay when I landed in each place uh, or that I was familiar. Actually, one of my favorite things to plan is a knowledge of how to barter in different cultures. Because bartering is really different in different cultures, and it's so fun. In, In Thailand, bartering is very amicable it's very friendly it's very joke based give me an example like there's a soda can here um, right that's what it sounds like (laughs) (laughs) and so if i want your soda can i'd be like hey how much for the soda can well let's actually flip it okay so you own the soda can great and i walk up to you and if we're in thailand i would be i would laugh with you i'd smile really big at you and i'd say oh this is such a nice can so good how much is it uh, thank you. It's, uh, it's a dollar. A dollar? Did it you get this all the way from China? I'll give you 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so would I be able to be like, mm, let's go with 75 cents? Yes, there would yes. be a process that happens. And Got it. in my experience, whether or not... Uh, so undercutting someone, like... It, that's a personal choice. I okay. tended not to do that very much simply because of the level of, of privilege that I experienced, the amount of money that I did have. So that, that amiable, friendly tone, mm-hmm. very important in Thailand where I was for bartering. Okay. In Myanmar, it was very different. Okay. So again, 
I have a soda can for $1. Oh, this is such a nice soda can. How much is it? Um, $2. Okay. I'll give you one. Oh, um, nope. Uh, buck 50? Yeah, no, I, I thank you. I think I'm fine. And at this point, I would walk away. And mm -hmm. usually the traders would then call after you. Like, wait, wait, wait. Yes. Like, okay, yes. okay, one dollar sounds right. good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's there's many different tones. Um, yeah, that was much much more serious. Right. And okay. I have not been to Morocco, but I've heard that bartering there is a, a whole new game. Very aggressive. Interesting. Um, so that's one thing that I loved researching because I found that just as fascinating as you are right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so into this. <laughs> so going forward... Just because I like asking you advice questions, I'm going to ask uh, when people seek community, what do you look for when you're building community for yourself? Building community in where I live now in, in yeah. Bozeman, Montana. Like coming home, what are some attitudes that you've brought? Mm. I feel really proud that I gave you a hard hitter there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, part of why it's taking me a moment is because the experience of homecoming is always the most challenging part of the trip for me. Mm -hmm. Um I have not experienced a lot of culture shock when going to other cultures. I experience immense culture shock when coming back to my own. I experience a sense of loss, even though I have abundant joy at seeing the people and the animals and the places that I love. There's often a sense of loss when coming from cultures where society is organized a little differently. And... When I come back, that's not the time where I have typically sought to build community. It is the time where I have continued to sort of gestate within myself and tend to myself and reach out to the people that I care about. And it has been an important time to ask for connection and for support when I come back. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, Ash, this has been lovely. Um, and I'm wondering if you have anything at the end that you want to promote. You know, I have one more thing I'd like to just recommend. Sure that has really lended this deep richness and this juiciness and this connection we've been talking about to my traveling experiences. And that is cultivating some sort of practice of listening, whether it's listening to others, listening to yourself, listening to what you might hear with a, a plant. Really, the sky's the limit here. Um, so much of world history has been at least the world history that I was taught, which is certainly not all of it. Mm. But so much of world history has been defined by people who have traveled to places. And when they traveled to those places, they saw great beauty and they saw things that they wanted and they did not listen to the people that were already there. And as a result, there has been this legacy of colonialism. And I believe it is extremely important for people who travel, especially women, um, to cultivate this practice of listening to connect with the people and the places you're at to not to fix that legacy. That would yeah. be a large task, but certainly not to continue it. And I find that listening builds trust much more than anything else, really. Yes. Yes, and in the time of world we live in, you know, regardless of your beliefs, I don't know anyone that believes that things are going great. 
And indeed, we're facing a level of peril that we never have with the climate crisis. And when you point to trust, I think you point to something really important, which is that we're going to need to trust each other in the times to come. And I really love that you brought that in. Thank you. And it has been just such a beautiful, I guess, just such a beautiful conversational journey with you. It's always a pleasure to chat. (laughs) Yes, thank you. And you're welcome to find me at the Bozeman Dharma Center. This has been Women Travel. Thank you for listening. I want to thank Peach Street Studios and Luke Sheeler, without whose knowledge base I wouldn't know the coolest bands in town. And if you'd like to reach out to me, I'm at womentravel at gmail.com. Women is spelled with a Y. Or catch me at Morgan Estberg on Instagram. In two weeks, I have an adventurous interview with Heather Watts and her lessons learned from timeshares in Central America. Safe travels out there. Okay. This is the end. <laughs> the end. Ha, ha, ha.